This is your first time. We're in a new series titled Against the Tide. Against the Tide. Everybody say Against the Tide. We're doing a study in the book of Colossians. This is the Church of Colossae. It is located in modern-day Turkey. And Against the Tide, the whole um, reason we named it Against the Tide is culture will always push against what the Lord wants to do. Culture is not um, created by Jesus. It's created by the world. It's created by flesh. It's created by ideology. So culture will always say, do this. And so culture is almost like a tide, and you have to learn, and you have to have the strength and the wisdom and the knowledge and the power of the gospel to have you navigate against the tide of culture so you can walk to your promise. And so at this moment with the Church of Colossae, they're battling a lot of things. They're battling legalism, you know, making up rules, and this is how you actually um, have a great life, just live by a bunch of rules. Jesus didn't come so we live by a bunch of rules. He came so we could actually be loved and then love people. And that love would actually compel us to follow him and to say no to death and say yes to life. Love is the answer and it comes from the kingdom, not from the world. Colossians shows that it's a kingdom down, not culture up kind of thing. So they're battling legalism. They're battling another thing called mysticism. Mysticism. And mysticism basically is people are having... Uh, visions and they're saying oh I've got an idea and basically whatever their vision is becomes the ultimate authority but it actually counteracted the gospel and so this is what's coming against the church in Colossians and then aestheticism was another thing they were battling aestheticism was this thing where you basically would deny your flesh even hurt yourself to show how holy you were You'd want to show physically how great you were. So some people would starve themselves to where you could see their ribs. Aestheticism was basically killing yourself to bring glory to yourself. These are the things that was coming against the church in Colossians, the city of Colossae. It's a church plant, by the way. It's a new church plant, and they're doing well. Their senior pastor, Epaphras, has done a great job. Paul is in prison because uh, this is just what he does. He would be thrown in prison a decent amount of time. So it's the first time he's in prison. He writes to this church, and he just hears all these great things. And he wants to set them up to win. And God wants to set you up to win. Do you know that? The enemy wants to set you up to lose, but God wants to set you up to win. And scripture is this gift, literally just to bring us victory. And so, so Paul writes four chapters, and the chapters weren't in the Bible at that time. They got added, of course, later on, um, about 1400s, 1600s, where the uh, verses and chapters were added. But So the book can really be divided into two parts. The first part of Colossians is the person of Jesus. just shows who Jesus is. gives us a vision for our life. You're not supposed to be more like me, and I'm not supposed to become more like you. We're supposed to become more like Jesus. And so it shows the person of Jesus. It paints a great vision for who we should be in our life. Then the last two chapters, the last part of the book, is the principle to Jesus. Because a lot of people know the person is Jesus, and they think they can have it all, but then they actually just forget about the principles of Jesus. I could have a Jesus sticker on the back of my bumper. I could have a Jesus little bobblehead. But if I'm driving 90 down the road, bumping, you know, uh, whatever, and then the cops pull me over and I get a $600 ticket, I'm like, why, God? Why did this happen to me? I thought you loved me. You can't break the principles and think that you can still be blessed. So there's this combinations of the person, the principles of Jesus. So it's going to be a fun study. And last but not least, he shows the importance that Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head. Doesn't say he's the foot of the church. Doesn't say he's the ankle of the church. Doesn't say he's the hand of the church. That he's the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church, by the way. I'm just a servant. I'm a pastor. He's the head of the church. And he talks about how vital it is for our life that Jesus is the head of your life and the church. Remove the head from the body, and the body cannot live. Remove the, uh, the Messiah from the church and the church will not be fruitful, it will be a dead church. If I could just put it simple, it's like uh, your iPhone. Imagine not being able to charge your iPhone. What's gonna happen to your iPhone? It's gonna die. And everybody with an iPhone is like, ah, what am I gonna do without my phone? Do you ever feel that way? You're like, 
where's my phone, where's my phone? Oh, I found it, okay. Oh, it's like under my pillow, I'm like, where's my phone? Oh my gosh, it's, that's a sickness, by the way, I gotta figure it out, okay? Uh, where's my phone right now? It's in my backpack, first pocket, whatever, okay. Um, but imagine like, okay, you just can't charge your phone, it's dead. And what Paul's showing throughout is that you have to be plugged into Jesus. You will, have, you will not have energy, you will not have vitality, you will not have joy if you unplug, you don't charge up with the King of Kings. Jesus showed this rhythm in his life. When things got busier, he actually prayed more. He didn't pray less and work harder. He actually went and plugged in more to the King of Kings, the Lord Lords, his father. It's an amazing picture. Secondly, it's kind of like showing that, Paul's gonna show us that it's like Instagram without the internet. Who's on Instagram? Raise your hand. Okay, I wanna meet the unicorns. Who's not on Instagram? My people, my people, contrarians. I got on a little while ago. I feel like I had to. I got like 500 followers. It's going great. Um, but uh, anyways, um, it's the famous is what they call me. Uh, no. So anyways, uh, it's like Instagram without the internet. And basically, I, I didn't even know you could get on Instagram with the internet, but I was on a plane. And you ever do things like a robot? You just grab stuff and you're like, didn't you, like how the phone get in front of my face? I don't remember doing this, but I was on the plane and I turned on Instagram. And I'm looking at pictures like, I already saw these pictures. And I look above and I didn't even read above it. It's like, uh, cannot refresh, no, uh, no connection. And so like, at first I was like, well, I got nothing else to do. So I was looking at old pictures. And then after a while, I just got really boring because there's nothing new to look at. And what happens a lot in our life, if I'm being honest, is you plug into Jesus and this is where freshness comes from. This is, this is where the, the newness of your life comes from. But when you unplug from Jesus, you start living the same old thing and it gets stale and you're looking at the same thing every day and it becomes this horrible rhythm because you're not connected to the one that can actually give you some fresh bread and fresh breath for your life. This is what Paul's gonna show us in Colossians. If I could just keep going, why not? This is kind of fun. Uh, it would be like a sailor without a map. It'd be like getting in a boat and you wanna get to your dream promise but you don't even know how to get there because you don't have the map on how to get there. And Jesus was the map. He's the map. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word's with God. Jesus is the Word. He's the map to our life. He is the roadmap to every promise that you have in your heart. Think about everything that you desire in your heart real quick. You will find it nowhere else except Jesus. That's, that's the gospel message. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a step further. And this is, I, I feel like this picture will show you against the tide. We're, uh, we grew up really poor. Um, actually, I'll pray because this one's kind of like more of a story. And I feel like, like the mood wouldn't match. You know what I'm saying? Hey, is Lacey amazing or what? Lacey's amazing! Okay, hold on. Where's Caleb? Caleb, stand up. Background to what happened at church today. We're going to preach eventually, I promise. Um, uh, Caleb was not supposed to be on the worship team, and he wasn't supposed to do any of the announcements or the platform. So what happened was somebody was supposed to play guitar. His wife got sick, went to the hospital. She's fine, by the way. She's totally fine, but they were in the hospital all night, so he couldn't be here today. So Caleb hopped in, played guitar. And then the couple that was supposed to do announcements, what happened was um, uh, their family member was in the hospital, so then they were in the hospital all night also. And so there was four people who left, and were like, how do we make four people one person? Caleb S. Borg. And so Caleb, <laughs> Caleb's like, I love you, Lord. Hey, welcome, everybody. Guitar's on his chest. You know, he's like, all right, back to this. Okay. Um, so, hey, you're the real MVP, baby. You're the real MVP. We just bow our heads. I'm going to pray. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing at Mission Church. I thank you for your word that is such a gift to our life. Oh, it's such a gift. Such a gift. Oh, may we be a... They say that we're in the most biblically illiterate generation ever in America. But Lord, I pray right now that you'd raise up a new generation. And I'm talking generation from zero to a hundred. That, that, that people in this room, that we'd have a new hunger for the bread of life. That we'd have a new hunger for your truth. 
that we have a new desire not only to study the book of the law, it says in Joshua 1, 8, but then we would obey it and we would be successful in all we do. Oh, Lord, I pray we fall in love with your word again. Oh, I pray right now for people's hearts. I pray for my mind. I pray for their minds that there'll be something just special that happens even in our hearts today that we go, man, I desire God's word this week for the first time. Oh, Lord, I pray for those seeds to be planted spiritually. I pray that that would happen in the name of Jesus. Father, we need you. We need you. Everybody said? So here's the picture that really the whole sermon series is going to be on. My parents uh, and I, we grew up super poor. I didn't contribute to the finances, so, uh, but I was on, in the family, and so I was a part of it. But we were really poor, and my dad found a way to scrounge $400 to buy us a boat for our family. Okay, So we had um, three kids at the time, and no one had not been born yet. We have six people in our family, so we have a family of five at this time. My dad gets a boat, fixes the engine, and my dad was a little crazy, okay? And so instead of going on a lake with this ghetto boat, he said, let's go to the ocean and fish in the ocean, okay? Uh, yeah, okay? Uh, my dad wasn't saved at this time. He lacked wisdom from God. Uh, and so we just got on uh, this little boat. We get in the ocean. There's a sound. And basically, we start fishing. And I, we catch like a sand shark. This is Washington State, by the way. And I was like, oh my gosh, we caught a sand shark. But, you know, of course, released it. And, and as we're, uh, you know, puttering around the ocean in a boat that should not be in the ocean, by the way, I didn't know this as a kid. There actually are like, you know, kind of like boats that are built for different parts of, you know, water, lakes, oceans, and then, of course, you know, big, big parts of the ocean, okay? So anyways, my dad's puttering around, and the engine just burns up, <laughs> stops working. And so now we're in the middle of the ocean. And as a little kid, you go straight dramatic status, like, we're going to die! You know, my dad's like, relax, I'm going to fix the engine, be fine. He gives me my Kmart sandwich. If you guys ever had a Kmart sandwich, they were phenomenal. It was a ham sandwich, hamburger bun, and American cheese. They were, they were like 50 cents. And so we'd always, like, on our, like, little adventure days, we'd buy Kmart sandwiches and some ghetto chips. And so I'm eating my Kmart sandwich. And the engine isn't working, and so we're starting to drift away from shore a little too far. And you start, you ever see somebody have fear in their eyes, and you're like, okay, now it just got real. You ever been there before? Yeah, so, I mean, like, even when I'm on the airplane, like, when the turbulence hits, I don't look at anybody except the flight attendant. And you're like, they'll be like, da, 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 the flight attendant's like, it's all good, it's all good. So, if you're good, then I'm good, okay? There's only been one time when we hit turbulence and I saw the flight attendant, the flight attendant was like, <gasps> and I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. If the flight attendant's scared, we're done, okay? Because you always have that one person, like, just tell me it's going to be okay, all right? So I see my dad, and we're drifting, and so he kind of, he's kind of in, like, a survival mode. He's like, Tyler, grab an oar. Michelle, grab an oar. That's my mom. And, uh, and start paddling this closer to the shore. We're getting a little too far away. And so, I, you know, I'm like 9 or 10, so we're, we're trying to paddle this boat to the shore, and I'm literally giving it all I got. <gasps> and my mom's, like, paddling. And as we're paddling, I'm just watching us, like, <gasps> And I'm dripping sweat, uh, and, and, and we're getting farther. And I was like, Dad, we're going farther away. We're not, and I didn't understand what was happening. I was like, I, I thought it was my fault. I was like, why am I getting so far away from the shore? You told me to go that way, but I, I can't get us that way. And I realized there's these things called tides. And the tide was pushing us away from the shore. And what happens in our life, and what Paul is trying to show us, is that the tide of culture is going to try to push you away from your promise. And what happens in our marriages, in our career, in everything, we go, okay, I want the marriage that I know that's supposed to be in my heart. I want the life that I know I'm supposed to have. I want the, the community I'm supposed to have. So I'm going to paddle my way to that promise. And so you have a lot of people in their own strength trying to, <laughs> you're like, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, my kids are fine. I mean, you can see it on people's faces. They're not physically rowing, but they're emotionally rowing. I can see it all the time. And what happens after a year or two, you've been rowing. And you're farther away from everything that your heart desires. And what happens with a lot of people is they give up rowing. And they go, maybe it wasn't me rowing, maybe it was the people around me. Maybe it has to be the career. Maybe it's the career. 
Maybe I got to do a new career because I don't feel what I'm supposed to feel right now. Maybe it's, maybe it's this philosophy. Maybe I should try something different. And so what happens is you have this moment in your life where you have to decide if you're going to just give up on life and settle in and just this is what culture has for you. Or this is what was so cool about the story. This other guy in a big old boat flew by us straight to the dock. And I was like, I want that boat. I hate this boat. I want that boat. And here's what Martin Luther says about the gospel. He calls the gospel message the great exchange. The great exchange is you take your ghetto boat and he doesn't just give you a new engine. He gives you a whole new boat. And he says, hop in this new boat. And I'll drive it. I'm the power. I'm the fuel. I'm the leader. Get in the boat. Enjoy the ride. And watch me take you to your promise. And some of you today, I just want you to even say it to yourself real quick. I want a new boat. Now say it loud. I want, I, want, I, want, I want a new direction in my life. I want a new mind where I'm not thinking terrible thoughts about myself. I have so much self-hate. That is not from God. Get a new boat. This is what happens when you get saved. You're justified. You now get in the new boat. And then the sanctification process is the renewing of your mind and the killing of your flesh. You drive away from the deadful things that your flesh was saying to you. You drive away from the horrible thoughts that you think about yourself. Christians are not different for what they go through. They're not different for what they go through. They're not. They're just different on how they go through them. Bad things don't define Christians. Bad things refine Christians. They refine us. And we use those things that the enemy would think they would destroy us. We actually step on top of them, and they become a testimony of our life, a victory, and not defeat. I want you to see this in Colossians 3. It's an amazing thing. We're going to get in the scripture. Colossians 3, we're going to see Paul starting to celebrate stuff. He's going to start celebrating things. And just so you know, celebration is a powerful part of your life. Studies show what you celebrate will be repeated and will be elevated in your life. So whatever culture celebrates... You can see it like it starts to become the value system of people's lives. It's actually how create, a culture gets created. So award shows and, and where money goes and even what people are chasing after, celebration starts to create the culture. And so Paul comes in to celebrate some things that definitely need to be repeated, not only in the church in Colossians, uh, church of, uh, the, ch- the church in Colossia, uh, Colossa, Colossae, Colossae actually, because Greek word, it's A. It's, it actually goes like Colossae. Um, uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm that guy. Actually, uh, but it's, I don't speak Greek, so it's so hard. Uh, anyways, uh, so Colossians 3 says this real quick, and we'll go back to that. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up in heaven and about which you have already heard the true message of the gospel that has come to you. Stop. In the very beginning of most epistles, the books in the Bible, the letters to churches, you kind of read past the intro. This is so thick. Look what the gospel produced. It says, you heard the gospel, the gospel was preached to you, and here's what came from the gospel. It says that what came from the gospel is you now have faith. Faith is so important for your walk. It goes on to say, after you, because you preached, the gospel was preached to you, you now have this thing called hope. It says that you have hope now that was stored up. And then also it says you have love for all of God's people. So Paul, right off the bat, goes, man, I've heard about this church. This church is, man, the gospel-centered. Gospel's at the center, not a self, not a preference. Gospel, and here's what's happening. Faith, hope, and love is happening at your church. That's what they're known for. Man, I want our church to be known for faith, hope, and love. But I don't. Only, but what's a church, a building? No, I want you to be known for faith, hope, and love. These are, these are three of the most important things you need to understand that need to be a part of your life. When you are plugged into Jesus, when you are getting charged up, the things that actually happen in your life is faith gets bigger. If you value faith here today, my prayer is that you hear the gospel. What Paul is trying to show us is when you plug in Jesus, you start to value faith here. You understand you can't do anything. It says that with faith, that's how you move mountains. 
How are you going to move mountains? How are you going to go against the tide? How are you going to get to where you're supposed to get if you don't have faith? The Bible shows faith is the mechanism that we move mountains with. It's pretty important, yes? And then it goes on to say that love, oh, if you don't have love, you don't even know God. Love changes your life. Like This is the currency that will change your mind and spirit. Love will change it. Nothing else. Love compels us to actually follow God's commandments. Love will compel you. It says it will constrain control, Greek word. And it goes on to say hope. Hope is your anchor. When things get hard, instead of running, you stand firm. Sometimes in a tide, it's not even about even getting back ground. It's just as the huge storm comes and you have hope as an anchor, it comes against you and you believe in God. And once that storm goes by, you're like, I'm still standing. Some of your greatest victories, aren't you walking forward? It's you just, I'm still standing. Some of you in this room, if I could be honest, if I heard your story, I would be like, how are you even here still? How are you even still joyful? How are you still even just navigating through life after this and this and this? And your testimony is, man, I was destroyed by this world, but hope was my anchor, and I'm still standing. This is the testimony that Colossians has. It goes on to say this. So that's point one. We'll look at that. Uh, Point two, it says, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. So it goes on to say that once the, the, the gospel is preached, you'll actually start to see a fruit. You'll start to see people's lives changed by it. Your life should be changed by the gospel. There should be a change in the way you live your life. There shouldn't be, I said yes to Jesus, but I still club on Monday. I said yes to Jesus, but I'm still super selfish. I said yes to Jesus, and I'm all about hating people still. No, it says the gospel should change the way you, lo- uh, you, you live your life. Sometimes I feel like in church at times, I'll talk to believers, and this is really what they're doing during worship. I love you, Lord, but I hate that person in the second row. I love you, Lord. I can't believe they're in church right now. I love you, Lord. Please get rid of my boss. I love you, Lord. What is this right now? This is, this, is, this is a battle between your flesh and the spirit. But it says when the gospel really gets a hold of you, you start to say, I love you, Lord. Please help me love that person. I love you, Lord. Help me forgive my boss. I love you, Lord. And that person's messed up. I remember being that messed up. And you saved me. I pray for the same thing for that person. I love you, Lord. Man, that person gossiped. I used to be a gossiper. Oh, help that gospel, Lord. Sure, that's, I, I feel like I just wrote a worship song. That's a hit. Okay, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Nobody steal it. Nobody. Just kidding. Okay, let's keep going. Point three, just as it is. Trust me, it's not a hit. Okay, uh, point three. <laughs> just as it has been do, doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace, you learned it from Epaphras, come on, senior pastor, uh, our dear, dear fellow servant who is faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who has also told us of your love in the spirit. The last point that we're going to look at is when the gospel is understood. So I have three points we're going to unpack. When the gospel is preached, we're going to talk about that. This is so powerful. When the gospel is preached saying there's another way. Tide is going this way, but there's another way to live your life. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. There's another way to live your life to the promise. So we're going to talk about when the gospel is preached. The second point we're going to talk about is when the gospel is lived out. So many people on a Sunday, they hear the gospel message all the time, but they never start living it. And Jesus showed in his teaching, they came back and like, oh, we, we, we did amazing things. What else, what do we need to know now? And he tells them the story of the Good Samaritan. He says, not only do you need to preach the gospel, but you need to live the gospel. Because some people might never read their Bible, but they'll read you. You'll inspire them to fall in love with the Lord by the way you live your life. So we're going to talk about when the gospel is lived out. And then last but not least, when the gospel is understood. Those are the three points today. Paul unpacks those things real quick in those first five verses. That's all we're going to really get through today. But I believe if we get through these, it's going to set a great foundation for the rest of the series, right? So uh, let's look at the first one. When the gospel is preached. When the gospel is preached. So like I said earlier, uh, aestheticism, legalism, mysticism, agnosticism, these are all things that were being birthed and fighting this church at this time. What are we fighting right now in our culture, you think? 
I'll just say the number one thing, the studies uh, show like crazy. Dr. Greenberg from UCLA came out with a study that the number one thing that the next generation wants is fame. They will give anything for fame. We're talking character, integrity, health. They've done like crazy studies, basically, that the number one thing that culture, the tide is showing people, is saying, run after fame with everything that you got, and when you get fame, your life will be great. This is, do you know the good news is not, the good news is Jesus. That's the gospel. But the good news was a term actually used back in the day. It was a common term that when there was a new king or a new rule, that people would go out to different villages and say, good news, Emperor Nero is now in charge. Good news, Julius Caesar is our new, new king. It was, it was whoever the new ruler is. And so what happens in culture is that every different generation and what happens with platforms and technology is new things come out and they're not declaring good news, but every award show is like, oh my gosh, I was, I was struggle bus and I made this one song and I'm famous. I just want to thank myself and myself and myself. Oh, you can do it too. There is this gospel being preached that Fame will change your life and it will save you. This, this is the, num- the number one thing that is valued in our culture today is fame. Not faith, hope, and love, fame. And I don't know how many famous people I need to see go crazy, kill themselves, get divorced, be depressed, until we realize fame is not the answer. I lived in L.A. around famous people. Even went to you know, famous people's concerts, and I would know the musical director, so they let me in the green room, and 15,000 people would be worshiping this one person. In the green room, I'd go meet them, and I'd be expecting them to be super happy and joyful because they just killed it at a show, and everybody's singing their songs, and if they could just touch, touch them, they're like freaking out, and then you meet them, and then they're like, just like, you were never built to be worshipped. You were built to worship. You're not supposed to. Fame doesn't look good on you. Fame looks good on Jesus. You don't wear it well. It's not even, it doesn't even, it's not good for your soul. Whenever we, we actually get praised, we always actually deflect it because we are reflections and we deflect it to him. Yes? So when the gospel is preached, it's an amazing thing. Our, our, a generation, a region needs to know that the gospel is actually the way to satisfy your soul. It, it, it is the gospel. So three fruits come from preaching the gospel. One is faith. Another one is love. Another one is hope. And real quick, I'm just going to read you one and we'll, we'll go on just to um, uh, save some time. But Hebrews 11 says an amazing thing. When I was praying for the message, one of the biggest things I felt like the Lord really impressed on me, I felt like convicted, was to pastor a church where people, you want to know why fear is so big? Because faith is so small. Not, fear is just faith in the wrong things. So fear is. So, so, so faith is here in a lot of people's lives, but to really have it elevate and become one of the biggest things where they think about faith all the time. When storm comes, the first thing that goes, like, okay, I, got, I know the storm says this, but I don't have faith in the storm. I have faith in my God that he's bigger than the storm. So I just want to read you some verses about faith, and maybe it will convince you or persuade you. The word faith is actually a Greek word of persuade. You get persuaded. You actually get, get, get convinced it's the best way to go. And here's what Hebrews 11 says about faith. Maybe you want it. Maybe you don't. I think you're going to want it after I read this. Here we go. <laughs> Through their faith, the people of days of old earned a good reputation. I think we all want a good reputation. I think anybody uh, wants that. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. And it's impossible to please God without faith. So if it's impossible to please God without faith, how in the world is it so not valuable to us right now? I think it's because a lot of us have been disconnected from the gospel. A lot of us have been deceived or maybe lulled to sleep by wealth. It says, it says that wealth is not going to knock you out. It's going to lull you to sleep. And it's going to take the things that you should value and put them to bed. And take the things of the world and elevate them. 
This is what wealth does. It's the spirit of manna. And so it goes on to say that the way we please God is faith. So faith should be a pretty big deal. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land. It was by faith that Sarah was able even to have a child. It was by faith that Isaac promised blessings for the future uh, sons. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each, other, uh, each other's sons. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, uh, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days. It was by faith that the people of Israel went through the Red Sea. How did they do it, real quick? Faith? Everybody say faith. I want to make sure this is really coming across. Yeah. I'm going to lay it on thick today, okay? Um, and I love, I, love what the, I, love, I love what the Lord says through Scripture. This is the Lord speaking to us in Hebrews. How much more do I need to say? There's not many verses and many chapters and many pages in the Bible like this one where the Lord repeats over and over again about an attribute that a believer needs to have to do something great in their life. It goes on to say, how much do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Everybody in the Bible that did something great, they all had faith. It goes on, by faith these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. Do you want to receive what God promised you? You're paddling to try to receive that promise. Start having faith and watch God bring you to your promise. Man, we need to overthrow some things in this region. It won't be by just our coolness or our talent. No, it won't. It will be by faith. It'll be by, we need to overthrow death. We need to overthrow suicide and division. And the way you do that is by faith, not by some just strategy. I love the, the, how it finishes. So good. They shut the mouths of lions. Man, we need to shut up the enemy today. Bible shows that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. He's toothless, though. So how does the enemy defeat people? Does he actually bite people? You know, actually, like, you know, like, run around. It's pretty descriptive, sorry. Um, no, that's not what he does. Here's what the enemy does. Speaks death to you. Tempts you with things. Faith will shut his mouth. Shut the mouths of lions. Here we go. Last one, at least, their weakness was turned to strength. Come on now. Mm, get in the new boat. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. Stop. It was by faith. It was by faith. It was by faith. And when I'm praying in the morning, I'm starting to say to myself, just going to give you a heads up, it was by faith that this church was planted. It was by faith that revival happened in the East Bay region. You're like, Todd, that's, that's too big. Of course, anything that you want to accomplish that is in your own strength, why have a God? If, my, if I can do what my God can do, then he's not a God. I worship a God that can do way bigger things than me. So it's by faith that I believe in my God that he can do way more with my life than I can do with my life. The thing that keeps me up at night is that if I would actually bind the enemy that I can do things in my own strength. That scares me. Man, I want to believe, God, if I give you my whole life, this, this life is going to be something that I've never seen before. My family, I'll just be honest, first one saved my family. I did not want to get married. I was afraid of marriage. Every, every single aunt and uncle, we had a big family. We're talking like I had four aunt and uncles on one side, a bunch of aunt and uncles on the other side. All of them got divorced. All of them were like literally drinking themselves to death and dying. Some even killed themselves, literally suicide. This is my picture of marriage. And I'm seeing culture, basically, when somebody says yes to marriage, just straight go to death. And I'm going, man, how, how am I going to have a good marriage? I don't even know how that, I, I'm so dysfunctional, God. I'm so messed up. I came from such a messed up home. I, how am I going to have a great marriage? It was by faith. I, by faith, I, I started putting my trust in God and becoming more like my Savior. 
and Rachel and I have been married for, it's again, seven years uh, uh, next month, but th this seven years has been, I'll say it, we are crushing marriage right now, okay? I'm crushing it. Seven years. Every, like, it's like one of those things like where, do you ever feel like when like, things are going good, you're like, when is the cliff going to hit? You know what I'm saying? It says in the Bible that actually that we go from glory to glory, that those who trust in the Lord will actually not be weary and tired, but they will soar on wings. And so our marriage is not going to have a cliff. When people tell me, oh, you just wait, I'm like, get out of here, devil. You, you just wait. I'm not just waiting. Yeah, I'll wait on God, but not that word. You just, you're weird. You're weird. I want to say words. Okay, anyways, um, let's keep going. I remember even when we first got married, we were like, your first year is going to be terrible. Congratulations. Um, when people get married, just don't say that. Just say congratulations. That's it. Give them some money, actually. Just give them money. If I could go back in time, the only thing I wanted from people when I first got married was just money. You know what I'm saying? I'm not rich. Just give me some money. Okay, anyways. Maybe a nice word, too. Whatever. I'm kidding. Um, I digress. The other two is just hope. Hope is the anchor. You heard me talk about it already. When the gospel's preached, you start to have this new hope that you never had before. Because what the gospel... I want to be surrounded by a type of person that talks about what Jesus has done in their life and what Jesus is going to do in their life. Th those two things, you have that around you. Instead of people talking about worst case scenario, oh, last season was this and this season would be that. that that's, that's not gospel language. And, and so for me, I, I look at scripture and you look at the gospel and when the gospel is preached... I'm going to let you know real quick. If your life was terrible, so was mine. But now because I found Jesus, my life is something I never thought I could have. You can have it too. That's how hope starts to get birthed in people's lives. And when you start to preach your life, a.k.a. how do we feed the enemy, blood of the lamb, power of the testimony, the word of God, bam, revelation. When you start to actually share your testimony of how hope changed your life and you can give it to other people, this is what happens in a community. It starts to change a community. When the gospel's preached, hope starts to invade, suicide goes down, and people start to taste victory. And last but not least, love. Man, love is the game changer. You'll hear in our mission track, our goal is to be the most loving church on the planet. Boom. If Jesus is love, it should be the attribute of the church. Because the church is supposed to be his bride and it's supposed to reflect him. And so what does love do? Really, what does love do? Love changes everything. It changes what you do. It literally says it changes what you want to do. It changes who you spend time with. When I fell in love with Rachel, man, my homies took a back seat. I mean, they, you know, they weren't even in the van anymore. I kicked them out, okay? Um, it was like, I mean, we used to hang out all the time. Like, Ty, where you at? I, you know, uh, her name's Rachel, and we'll hang out again one day. Okay, bye-bye. Um, love changes your schedule. It just does. It does, and it's a good thing. Love is a, the right, not worldly love. The tide of love that the world sells is is what we call eros. It's, it's erotic love. Um, even Apple has tapped into this, if you want to know. So uh, eros love, so there's four types of love, agape, phileo, storge, and eros. And eros is erotica. And basically, they show studies that most people will love something in this ero physical love for about a year and a half. So nine months usually is the, the beginning of it, but they can hold on for a year and a half. Have you ever noticed how Apple always comes out of the phone every nine months to a year and a half? Because you're like, I love my new phone. Oh my gosh, I got a new iPhone. I love it. A year later, this thing's a piece of crap. And they're like, a new iPhone. Oh my gosh, I'm in love with my new iPhone. iPhone 12. What happens with everything else in our life, though? Oh, I love my church. Year goes by. I, I, I still like it, but something happened. You'll never fall in love with the church or people with your own strength. It has to be the, the, the love of God. I don't love my wife well because I just decided it. God's love comes into my life, and then it goes through my life. What gets to you must come through you, and that's love. Amen?
So the first point we, we just learned was when the gospel is preached, it's going to change things. Come on. Second thing is, is when the gospel is lived out, when the gospel is lived out. So one of the biggest things that Paul is doing, I love this about the uh, Colossians, is uh, you have this church and they're, they're, they're this new church plant and they're going well, but there's also history you can show throughout scripture that when churches birth, they birth with the best intentions. They usually start on track to an extent. Not all churches, but I like to think that our church started on track. We're gospel-centered. We love Jesus. Jesus is the head of this church. The, uh, the Bible is our boundaries. I think we're doing pretty well. I'm not saying we're perfect, but what happens in a lot of churches, you can see this in Galatians. So you have the Church of Galatia, and literally what happens in Galatians is that you have some people who become more conservative than Jesus. Like, so if this is Jesus, they're like, Jesus is such a liberal. <laughs> I mean, that guy's on the left side of what we actually believe. They're like the right-wingers, but I'm talking like we're right and everybody's wrong-wingers, okay? Um, they're the ones that are creating rules, coming up to you saying, I can't believe you do that. How dare you do that? I mean, they just love rules. They make more rules. If you meet with, with them, they always want to ask you about things. I, I, I always say this. Religious people are always itching where nobody's scratching, okay? And so they're always like addressing things that, no, that helps nobody, you know what I'm saying? And so what's happening in Galatian, uh, in, in the Church of Galatia is that they're fighting about eating pork still. Bacon. They're, they're, they're divided over bacon. Who loves bacon? Pfft. Yeah, come on. We wouldn't go to the Church of Galatia. Get out of here. Um, so people are eating at different tables now, Gentiles and Jews, because the, 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 the tide of how many people were so obsessed with rules that the church became off kilter and unaligned. Do you know your alignment will always affect your assignment? The, what you are, if you're aligned with rules, it will affect your assignment of how you see people and serve people. And so when um, Paul writes to that church, he says, hey, you're, too you're more conservative than Jesus. Come back over to the gospel and love people. It's not about bacon. It's about Jesus. <laughs> right? Do you know what's funny to me? This happens in the church all the time, though. People's deal breakers that come to church are like those kind of questions, bacon questions. They're really like, like that, that's, so you, what, oh, okay. Well, we're going to love people. We're going to preach the gospel. Not good enough for me. I need to know what you think about bacon. That happens. You, you think I'm joking. I've been in ministry for 15 years. I've had a lot of conversations. Like, it's been grieving, actually. I'll go over here. Then you have the Church of Corinth and Corinthians. They start church, and then they just go to crazy Jerry Seinfeld town. Read it. They're like, one of, like, one of the chapters is literally like, oh, my gosh. They, they celebrated their, their, uh, a son marrying the father's wife. Is that Jerry Springer? You go, oh, we're like, what, father marrying? Yes, just what I said. So a son marrying their father's wife, his mom, basically, okay? Like, like that is Jerry Springer on steroids. They were a church community celebrating that? Who would celebrate that? Somebody who missed the mark, who went off kilter, and they started falling in love with pleasure. Why stop sinning if Jesus keeps forgiving? This would be the culture of basically, hey, tolerance. You never need to change. Do you know tolerance is the opposite of repentance? This, tolerance is you never need to change. Just be you. Me, just be me? You don't want me to be me. You hurt my feelings? This is what I used to do when I was just me. You're dead to me. I would never talk to you again. Do you really want me to be that? I, me, I'm selfish. I don't care about you. Th that, that's what you want to teach me? Live for pleasure? Because here's what happened in the church of Corinth. They actually started throwing communion parties, but it was... Are there any kids in the house? They were having, like, drunk orgies. Uh, sorry, you're going to have to explain something. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's what was happening. And then people actually want to come to communion, and alcohol would be all gone. And Paul would say... People are worse when they come to your church. Come back to the gospel and start living a holy life. You're set apart. You're not supposed to live for pleasure. You're not supposed to live for rules. You're supposed to live for Jesus. Your alignment will always affect your assignment. 
And so if you're aligned with pleasure and you're aligned with culture, you're going to start making decisions and you'll start picking scripture that you like and you don't like. If you have a God that always agrees with you, you're probably your own God. Do you know that I wrestle over scripture? I'll go, God, I don't like this verse. I don't get this verse, God. Help me. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it, Lord. Help me understand this. I grew up in a culture in America and it's 2000. This verse makes no sense to me. Rachel, when we were, you know, even in our marriage retreat, Ephesians 5, it talks about submitting to your husband. Rachel's like, I don't like that verse. We're going to pull that by the Bible. We're going to toss it. But then you actually start to wrestle with it. And here's what's great when you wrestle with scripture. Because that's the scripture I was talking about even when I was unpacking that. Is when Rachel and I got married, she worked at Sony, making six figs, driving this bright green Mustang, very loud and ostentatious, but whatever. Um, that's my girl, you know, pulling up. Woo! Okay. Anyways, she was in her 20s. Um, and, uh, and she marries me. I'm in ministry, and she makes more than me. She's been single, and she has her own place and living her own life. And then, and then you hear a verse, submit your husband. And what the culture says to that verse is, basically, why would you ever listen to that? That means your husband's your boss, and you're the employee. That's not what that verse means. Wrestle with the verse. Here's what the verse says. Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. The whole context of that heart is a submission competition. When two spouses serve each other, and put each other first, it glorifies God. Amen. And once you actually start to wrestle with Scripture instead of throwing it out, it produces fruit. Rachel and I's marriage is phenomenal, not only because of the Spirit of God, but because we have literally gotten to a serving competition. Rachel's always trying to take care of my needs. And because it says to me, serve your wife like Christ served the church that's dying for your wife, putting her needs before mine. And so when you serve each other, there is this alignment that where you are literally trying to help each other become everything you're supposed to be. This, this is what happens when you actually allow Scripture to be lived out in your life. Your alignment will always affect your assignment. goes on. I, I, just, I, I, I did some studying, um, and this is a, just a spiritual spine. I mean, a physical spine. This is literally what the physical spine in your life does. The physical spine has two major functions. It serves to keep the body balanced and upright. So the spiritual spine, the Word of God, is what aligns us, this cornerstone, keeps the body balanced. We're not over here in chaos. We're not over here in rules. We're with Jesus. So the spiritual spine keeps you balanced. Keeps on a good, it's an amazing picture. It goes on to say it works to protect the central nervous system. When you're upright and you're actually balanced and your spine is actually aligned with the Lord, your, nervous, your, your emotions, think the phys- it affects your emotions. Your spiritual spine, when it's aligned with Jesus, will affect your emotions. This is even, this, it's an amazing picture. It goes on to say, when the um, spinal column is in the proper alignment, the entire body is balanced, and the central nervous system is able to facilitate communication between the body and the brain. So when you are aligned with the head of your life, which is not you, and get off that seat if you think you're in charge of your own life. How's that working out? Yeah. The, literally, you look, you study Fortune 500 companies. You know how they change a company? Leadership's always the problem and always the solution. So if you're the leader of your life and it's going bad, Fire yourself and hire Jesus, okay? Some good advice. You're welcome, okay? And then have Jesus be the head of your life and watch your alignment and have him communicate to you what you're supposed to do in your life and have it affect your assignments in life. Watch the fruit in your life. Let's keep going. Last one is simply this, is when the gospel is understood. When the gospel is understood. So when the gospel is understood, this is when it gets really good. I think one of the biggest things that holds people back from really living for the gospel, they just don't really understand it. Hosea 4.6 says, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. 
And so Jesus is the one that gives knowledge. He's the one that gives wisdom. A wisdom from above is peace, uh, gentle, it's mercy, it's peacemaking. Wisdom of this world, it's selfish, it's jealous. This is James 3. Selfish and jealous, it creates dissension. And so I love this verse, and it's going to make sense in a second, but I just want to read it to you real quick. And it's um, uh, Psalm 1, Psalm 1. It says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with the sinners, or join with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord. Meditating on it day and night, they are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. And I want to prosper in all I do. I just, it, life can really be summed up with peaks and valleys. It, it, of course, this is just, this is, again, Christians aren't different. We all go through valleys. We all go through peaks. This is life. But the difference with a Christian is when we go to a valley, the Bible is showing in this Psalm 1, I want to catch you, you know where fruit is birth and where fruit flourishes? Valleys. Go to the top of a mountain. You're not going to see any fruit. And so the difference for us is when we go to a valley and things are happening, God is birthing fruit of forgiveness and patience and joy and love and thankfulness. And when you walk out of that valley because you walked with the Lord instead of the culture, you come to the next peak. Have you ever seen anybody get like a brand new house and they have no joy? They brought no fruit with them to the peak. If you bring no fruit to the peak, why would you have joy? If you don't allow the valley to do what it's supposed to do, then you're never going to enjoy the wealth of this world because the wealth of this world doesn't actually do anything for you. It's actually what's inside you that does everything for you. Is this making sense? So it goes on to say, the leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do, but the wicked, they are like worthless shafts scattered by the wind. Woo, let's talk about tide. Let's just use wind. So people who don't plant with the Lord are basically like, wherever the tide takes them, oh, we're doing this today? Okay, okay. Oh, uh, culture says this is important now? Oh, okay, culture says this is the most important. Okay, I'm 25. Culture says to do this at 25. Okay, culture says to do this at 30. Okay, I know that churches should be a priority, but, but, but culture says it shouldn't be that much of a priority. I'll go over here. This is what it's saying. Unless you get planted, the tide will blow you wherever it's going to go. And so one of the first things I want to do is we're going to do a test if you understand the gospel. Very simple. Three questions to see if you really understand the gospel. I am your spiritual chiropractor today. You're welcome. Welcome to the chiropractor. Do not sue me. Actually, I don't want to use that language. Never mind. Like, oh, I came and he was the chiropractor and he's not licensed. Okay. Basically, the gospel. So the gospel. The gospel is your spiritual chiropractor. Okay. And so three questions. If you're a little out of alignment with the gospel and you don't actually process well, I want it to spiritually crack you back into alignment. I want to get you back to where you're supposed to be. So the first one is simply this. And this is kind of a more of a broad question, and they're going to get more specific. But test one is simply this, is how do you live your life? How do you live your life? The way you live your life will tell on you. Where is the gospel in your life? How do you live your life? And I, I simply wrote a, a, a simple illustration that I want to share with you. I, I am allergic to chicken. Anybody allergic to chicken? Anybody the unicorns out there? Yeah, you're like chicken. Yeah, anything with wings, I'm allergic to. Deathly allergic, okay? This happened in puberty. I was 15 years old. I was a late bloomer, by the way. Uh, but anyways, um, uh, so I was, I was. It was what it was. Um, and so I remember eating chicken, going playing hoops, and I start to swell up. My eyes get swelled shut. My ears get big. You ever seen the movie Hitch? Anybody seen the movie Hitch? This is what's happening to me, okay? Never happened before. My buddy's like, bro, you look weird. Go outside. Great advice from 15-year-olds, Okay. So I just, I'm sitting on a sidewalk thinking the cold weather is going to help me like get all better. And it's getting worse. And some lady's like, you know, and she goes, do you know you have an anaphylactic shock? I'm like, anaphylactic what? And, uh, and she's like, anaphylactic shock. I was like, what's that? She's like, it could kill you. Yeah, tell me. Thanks a lot, lady. Uh, they uh, rush me to the ER, grab me, throw me in. Uh, I'm starting to turn like different colors. I get shots full of me. They save my life. They say it was the MSG and the teriyaki chicken. So then I eat chicken two more times. Because who's allergic to chicken? 
right? And they're like, oh, stay away from MSG. So, so I eat chicken two more times, same thing happens. Finally I go to a specialist, like, stay away from chicken. Here's why I tell you the story. I'll go to a restaurant, and we'll tell the waiter, and waiters hear a lot of allergies these days, and so I feel like they're kind of annoyed of our, us allergy people. Who has a aller food allergy? Raise your hand. We should start a small group. We should. I think it'd be good. We need to stick together. People, like, feel like they judge us. We don't want, we don't want the allergy. We didn't ask for it. We don't mean to be high maintenance at a restaurant. It's just, it is what it is. Okay? Public service announcement, period. Let's move on. Okay? So, so I'll go to a restaurant. And we'll order the food, and it could be like anything. Cheesecake Factory has chicken stock and everything, basically. They're bang, bang, shrimp, you name it. So, so we'll go to like an Italian restaurant, and be like, oh, I'd love the meatballs and the, and the spaghetti. And uh, I say, hey, by the way, I have a chicken allergy. Is there any chicken in the pasta or the meatballs? Oh, no, 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 you're good. And then Rachel will speak up, uh, he's deathly allergic. And then the waiter will be like, oh, actually, let me go check. And I'm like, hold on a second. You just said it, was, it didn't have any. And so you're going to bring it anyways? <laughs> they don't care. If you're not going to die, this is what I talk to servers, no joke, like, yeah, I'm, um, could you cook it with oil instead of butter? I'm a little um, lactose. You're, it's still butter, by the way. Like, oh, this is so much better with the oil. No, it's probably still butter. Just going to give you a heads up. They really don't, uh, they, you know, serving gluten-free gluten, uh, gluten -free stuff. It's just regular gluten. But whatever, okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm gluten intolerant. Yeah, we'll get you different noodles. Same noodles. Okay, anyways. I want to hear this real quick. A lot of us come to church, and we're like the waiter, to be honest. We're like the waiter. Live for Jesus. Okay, sounds good. And then we go live for ourselves because we think it's a suggestion. But actually what this is, the first test of how you live your life that's going to show is that the gospel is going to become real in your life when it's life and death. That when Jesus says something to you, when he says love, give, serve, forgive, when he says put me first, this is life and death. This is if you say yes to my words because my words are life, you will walk against the tide and you'll walk to your promise. But if you casually take my words and think they're just a suggestion, you are going to be drifted away still to death. Do you know some tides are not actually that powerful? They're just really subtle. They're just this little... And in a year, you're like, how did I get so far away? Have you ever... I've counseled uh, uh, guys before and they got into lust and there's like, it was just one little click the first time. And then eventually it became this thing where I just... I don't even know what happened, but a year later, I'm so immersed in it, I, can't even, I don't even know how to stop in my own strength anymore. It's a slow tide of lust that has now literally dissed you from your spouse and from your promise and from things. And I just want to hear this real quick. If you struggle with that in church and find somebody, tell them, let them walk you out of that tide and walk you to purity again. This, this is the church. Some of you, you're like, oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. And then you get in your career and your career slowly just starts to own your life. And you're working to live, and you're live to work in, and you're not doing anything that God calls you to do. And you're like, how did this become my life? Because the tide of culture is trying to own you. Create a new rhythm with Jesus. Follow him out of that rhythm. Amen? Amen. Last but not least, I just found this interesting. I, I wrote this. The gospel takes you from soullessness to soulfulness. And then I wrote... Paul showed the gospel makes your insides greater than your outsides. And really what all this means is when you start to live the gospel, culture says this. Let's just let's be real. This is always culture. This is always Jesus, okay? So uh, culture says this. Uh, get the girl. Get the spouse. Get the car. Get the house. Get the job. Get the promotion. Make more money. Make more money. Okay, make, okay. Oh, 
why is it that I don't like my spouse and my house doesn't satisfy me and my cars don't satisfy me and everything else doesn't satisfy me, but I have everything that culture told me to because here's the deal. You don't get changed from the outside in. You get changed from the inside out. And so Adam Silver talked about NBA players recently. They did a study and they're all just so depressed because all these kids that grew up in poverty that now have hit, hit it rich thought, well, I got the money and I'm trying to find the girl and I've got the house and I've got more cars than I can count, but I'm still, and I got fame and I'm still so depressed. What's wrong with me? You cannot get changed from the outside in. You could have all the world given to you and it will not change your heart. Jesus says, let me come into your life. The gospel will come into your life and the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the gospel, he's talking about it's going to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And then when you, to be honest, if you want a nice car, have a nice car. It's just not an idol. It's just, hey, I like my nice car. But when you have Jesus, you actually enjoy it even more. So be honest. Because you, you know who gave it to you. You know your provider. You're thankful for it. You don't, you don't find your identity in it. It's just, man, I, you know, I got a Jeep Grand Cherokee, no, Jeep Wrangler. It's my favorite car. I've always wanted it. Got a few years ago. And so, you know, saved up for it. My buddy owned a Jeep Wrangler dealership, so he hooked me up big time, by the way. Always, friend, hey, who loves a good hookup, right? That's why I love Jesus. Just always hooks it up, you know what I'm saying? And so, hooked me up. And when I got my Jeep Wrangler, I remember being a kid, and we always had just terrible cars. We're talking cars that you didn't know were going to get you to point A to point B. Like, we were always broken down. Ghetto, 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 ghetto cars. I remember getting my Jeep Wrangler and just saying, God, thank you. You give gifts and it's just a car. If it was gone tomorrow, I wouldn't miss it. But you're the God of the big things and the little things. You care about me being restored spiritually, but you also, just a little, here's a little gift, Tyler. It's a Wrangler. It's not, you can take it tomorrow, but it was, I felt like it was like the Lord loved it. I never thought I would get a Wrangler. I never, I never thought it would be possible. And it's just a car. I mean, like, it's just a Wrangler, Tyler. No, when you're a kid and you're, dry, you're seeing him as a kid, I'm like, that's my favorite car. And then you're in the ghetto car. And then you get ministry. And for the first five years, you make $100 a week. For my first five years, I made a, no, $200 a week was actually my second half. I apologize. But I was like, okay, Lord, I said, I said yes to poverty for the rest of my life. No. Lord takes care of his people. He blesses his people. Is this making sense to anybody? Yeah. The Katata culture says this. Get all the outside things and your life will be better. That's what the, this is, I'm summarizing the first one, okay? But here's what uh, the gospel says. The gospel says get Jesus and have him change your life from the inside out. So the answer to your first one, if the gospel is actually really what it's supposed to do, is the answer to your first test of how you live your life is you believe that the gospel is the problem, is the solution to all your problems. If you're going to actually... Have the gospel in the first test, how you live your life. The reason why you live your life the way you do is because you have been convinced your answer to life is the gospel is the answer to all my problems. Joy, gospel. Uh, I, I feel dissatisfied, more gospel. I, I feel uh, I don't have purpose, go to the gospel. Uh, my marriage is in struggle, I'm going to the gospel. What does it teach me? I don't have relationships right now, I'm not flourishing relationships. Gospel. You will be convinced by the gospel that it is the uh, solution to all your problems. That's the answer. You're welcome. You're going to pass the test, okay? Let's keep going. Second one, we're almost done. Are we, are we tracking it? Is it okay? It's a little longer message. Are we okay? Should I stop? Just want to go home? I'm not going to do that. It's 11 o'clock service. I got that. I actually had it in last service because you were coming. Okay, anyways. Um, second test. The second test. Two questions, more specific. Two questions, more specific. How do you feel when you fail? And then how do you feel when you obey God? This is the emotional part of when the spine is out of alignment, it will affect your emotions. So when your spine's out of alignment from the gospel, you'll start to feel things you should never feel. So how do you feel when you fail? I'll be honest. Uh, when I uh, wasn't saved, I struggled with self-hate and condemnation. 
Like, I'm talking like, you're like, well, how, how bad, Tyler? I would be the kid that wouldn't, I would fail. I would actually take my head and hit against the wall. Yeah, I don't do it anymore. We're okay. <laughs> but I used to do it. My mom would be like, what are you doing? This, this, was, my, this was my life. I would lose in a video game, and I would just sock myself as hard as, who does that? My, my alignment, my, my, I was so performance-driven. And you come into culture, and culture's all performance. Sports, grades, job, everything's performance. You get in the gospel, it's paternal. It's father, I love son, because of who you are, not because of what you did. It's this amazing thing. So the gospel changes the way that you feel even when you fail. And here's what I mean by that. I was a young kid, and I was watching, I forget, some TV show, and the kid had hairspray, and he sprayed on a match, and it went like, Whoo! you guys ever seen that before? Good times. Okay, um, I'm just going to let you know where this is going. I set my uh, parents' bathroom on fire. Okay, anyways, so how did we get there? Let's go back to the beginning. Okay, so I get in the bathroom, and I take this hairspray, and I put it on this toilet paper, and I fill the bathtub with water because I'm a smart kid, because uh, then it's going to go out, I think, in the, um, in the bathtub. So I literally do this little stream of toilet paper. I douse it with hairspray, and then I light it. And I thought it was going to be like this. And it was going to be done. Why did I do it? I'm a kid, okay? This is what kids do. All right, this, yeah, don't let your kid buy matches, right? So then I, so I light it. Did you know that wallpaper catches on fire? It is unbelievably flammable. It's, it's like kindling, okay? So I light it, and this goes this way, but then the wallpaper starts catching on fire, and I literally freak out. I'm going to burn down the house, and just so you know, my parents are home at this moment. They have no idea this is happening. The only thing in the bathroom are the guest towels. Do you guys understand when I say guest house what that means? <laughs> Tyler, don't look at the guest house. Don't touch the guest house. When you wash your hands, don't you dare dry them off the guest house. The guest house are not for you. They're for the people that come. I know you live here 100% of the time, and guests are only here 1% of the time, but they are for the guests and not you. Okay, Mom. Okay, okay. So these are the guest house. That's all I got. So I take the guest house and saw this on TV. If you, if you take the oxygen from the fire, you'll, you'll put it out. So I put out the fire with the towels and I pull up the guest towels, and there's just holes in them everywhere. And like a good kid, though, I folded them back up and put them right where they're supposed to be. <laughs> this is what you do. What you do. And uh, I don't tell my parents. The whole time, the, the whole house could have burned down. I could have died. I never called my parents. So then I just go outside and try to play, try to forget about it. They're going to walk in eventually. Hopefully, they won't notice. We'll see what happens, okay? <laughs> Floor is burnt. You know, like literally burn marks and the, and the uh, wallpaper, the walls burn on this side. The guest house have holes, but I'm just hoping they won't notice, okay? Anyways, a few hours later, my mom is like walks in and goes, Tyler! Now, there's three kids. She didn't even think about the other two, just to be honest. She knew, right? So I run in, and this is just even about, this is even about the sermon, but I thought it was fascinating. She wasn't mad that the floor was burned. She wasn't mad that the wall was burned. She was mad about the guest house. <laughs> She's like, did you do this? And I was like, yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. She's like, you're grounded for a month. And I remember going into my room, and I should have been grounded, to be honest. But the way that I was trained, and this is what the title culture says, and I want you to hear this real quick. The title religion says this. The title religion says, when I mess up, my dad is going to kill me. But the gospel says, when I mess up, I call my daddy. It's this new chasm shift. When I mess up, God is so mad at me. That's the tide of religion. 
And so the title religion makes you work so hard to put out your own fires. And the sad part is, is you've probably put out your own fires before. And so you think you're strong enough to put out all fires, but the problem is there's going to come a fire that's too big that you can't handle, and you know that your daddy's still in the house with you, but instead of calling on him, you're doing everything you can to put it out, and your life is being destroyed around you. And all God says is, the gospel says, call on your daddy. The word is Abba, Father. But religion says, if you call on God at this moment, he's mad at you. No, no, actually, it's the opposite. He runs to you, and he restores what you broke. He doesn't want you to do it again, of course. That's what the heart of repentance is. But this is what, this is what the gospel shows. Another thing that, that the tide says, the, the tide of religion says that uh, if I mess up, my church is going to give up on me. But the gospel church, actually, when you mess up, you know that your church is going to rally around you. The, we have to have more people actually sharing what they're going through. I always wonder how many things could have been prevented in a church if people actually just shared what was going on in their life. But tide tells you to be quiet and not talk about your stuff. The tide of culture says don't do it. And last but not least, the, the, the religious tide says, man, if I tell my Christian friends what I've done, they'll think less of me. The gospel says that we all are in the same boat. We all are sinners. All fall short of the glory of God. Nobody's going to think less of me. I'm not going to think less of you. I just think Jesus is great. We're all messed up. And so when you're going through something, do not let the tide keep you silent from calling out for help. One of the greatest tests that you believe in the gospel is you know the gospel is one of the greatest gifts when you say, help me, Jesus. I wrote down the answer. It's, it's very, very simple. But it, when, uh, when you go through a hard time, uh, Joshua 1.8, I think is such a good, good verse. I want to hear this quick. Study this book of instruction. Continually meditate on it day and night so you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. The Bible throughout teaches us dependency. But the title culture teaches us independency. Study the book and watch it teach you how many times you should be calling out to God. Jesus called out to the Father. Maybe we should too, yes? Second question in this test, and I'll invite the worship team to come up, is how do you feel when you obey God? How do you feel when you obey God? The tide of culture would say this. If you obey God, you're missing out on the party. If you actually say yes to the things of God, you're saying yes to boring, yes to these things, and you're actually missing out on all the fun and all the great things the world has to offer. Do you know the first lie Satan sold Adam and Eve? If you actually obey God and say yes to him, you're not going to have the life that you actually could have. You'll miss out on being happy, basically. This, this one thing, if you had it, you would have a whole different life. Would, you'd, be, you'd be like God. It'd be amazing. Obeying God is not your best life. Disobeying God is your best life. And when you know the gospels, when you start to go, I know that 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 I'm planted in the gospel. And when storms come, I'm not going to unplant myself and plant it in something else. Because what happens when you unplant a tree or a, a plant? Eventually, you're planting it everywhere and anywhere and going everywhere like a chaff. It's going to wither and die. But when you say, I get it. I get it. I obey God. I'm going to stand here. When times are hard, I'm going to still serve. When times are hard, I'm still going to give. When times are hard, I'm still going to love. That's when you say, I got it. I'm going to obey God because I know he has the best for my life. I'm not turning around. Peter, are you going to leave me? Where else would I go, Jesus? And Jesus is the way. And last but not least, we're, we're done. Forgive me for the longer message. You know, actually, not forgive me. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> I labored over this. I was studying. No, no, okay, no, I didn't do that. No, no. Uh, thank you. Praise. Okay, um, here we go. Not, last but not least is, last question is, what's the one thing you think you can get that would change your life? Just three, 
alignment questions. And I'll just, throughout Scripture, I mean, Ephesians 3.8 talks about the riches of grace, the riches of Christ. Unsearch, it says in Ephesians 3.8, says, preach to the Gentiles, hello, uh, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Preach it to them. Preach it to them. That's the gospel. Preach the limitless riches of Christ. It's limitless is what that word is saying. It's limitless. It, it has, it's infinite. It doesn't run out. This is throughout. You'll see the riches, the riches, the riches, the riches. All of us desire to be rich. Raise your hand if you like to be rich. Let's just be honest. It's not bad. I, I actually think it's the way God designed us to be heirs to heaven, the, the, the place where gold is actually on the streets. That's how bawling we are in heaven. That, that the things that we think are big here, they're just the dirt in heaven. Isn't that amazing? So the number one thing that Jesus said would compete against him. Didn't say it was going to be sex. Didn't say it was going to be gossip. Didn't say it would be just some rule. He said it would be the spirit of manna. Goes on to teach his first parable and he says it's about money. He says the deceitfulness of wealth will choke you out. And basically what it's saying is, show you a picture. If I offered you today a limitless ATM machine that would spend out as much cash as you would want it. It never ran out of cash. Let's just be honest. In the very beginning, how would you react? Like, you'd be like, okay, thank you. And then you're like, does it actually work? And then you start like, you know, like a thousand, a thousand spit out. And then you're like, oh my gosh, so you say 5,000, 5,000 spit out. Then you're at like 10 million. And then it just starts going, <laughs> goes to the 10 million. And so you have hundreds just flying over your head. You know, let's be honest. What would you start doing? You'd be like, oh my gosh. All my problems are going to be fixed. Millions of dollars are, are falling around me. And this limitless ATM, it's now mine. And it's going to change my life. And oh my gosh, I'm just, I'm balling now. I'm the richest guy in the world. And, and now I get to have everything I've ever wanted. This is what the spirit of manna has you chase. Because it says the deceitfulness of wealth will promise you everything that only the gospel will give you. Because what are you thinking of when you get that? I'm going to have financial security for the rest of my life finally. I'll have peace because I have financial security. You'll never have enough money to have peace to have financial security. Oh, your money starts, okay, I'm going to be so healthy now. You can, have, you can be the richest man in the world and still health is not guaranteed to you. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have everything I ever wanted. You don't know what you want. You don't know what you want. You'll start buying things that you think you want and then you'll be frustrated. Ask be any parent in the house. Okay, can I have Mountain Dew at 2 a.m.? Can I drive the car on 5 this is what kids want. They think they know what they want. And the parent says, no, yeah, you don't love me. No, I know what you need. Man, a limitless ATM makes you a kid running your life, destroying your life. Let's look at the other side of the picture. Over and over again, Jesus is meeting people, and he's offering this limitless ATM of the gospel. To the woman at the well, would you like living water? It never runs out. It's limitless. You know that well? That well will run out. I'm a limitless well of love, of joy, of peace. Everything that you need to actually enjoy life, I will just keep spitting that stuff out of this limitless well. Do you want it? She's like, hold on a second. She starts processing, starts reading her mail. The thing that she has been chasing for her value as men, and she goes, I want it. And 
I just picture the same thing for her. Just this, the riches of grace just absolutely showering over her life and her going, my life has changed. And she runs back to a village where she had shame and she actually leads a whole village to Jesus. It's an amazing moment. And then you think of Zacchaeus who is super rich. He's got a, you know, you picture Zacchaeus, he's got the donkeys with the spinners. I mean, he's wearing the cool Gucci um, fanny pack across his chest. You know what I'm saying? He's got all of it. I and mean, he is rocking the gear. And Jesus says, I'd, I'd love to have lunch with you. Zacchaeus already has a limitless ATM, basically, if you will. He's super rich. And I always wonder what that conversation looked like at lunch, but I picture Jesus sharing very similar things as the character of him. Do you want something that will satisfy your soul forever, Zacchaeus? Do you want forgiveness for all the things that you think about at nighttime when you go to bed? Do you want to be restored to think that the things that maybe, maybe Zacchaeus had a bad dad? You know what your dad said to you? Do you want a father that will always love you? always lead you and always be patient with you. Zacchaeus is like, oh my gosh, I've never seen these kind of riches. And this one is like, get it out of here. Taste of that. No, I'm good. I'll give it away to the people. I'll return it to people. I'm good. We'll read your verse and we're done. John 14, 6 says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So here's my three questions. The way you live your life was the first one. What's the way you live your life? Jesus has to be the way. That's your spiritual alignment. Next one was, what do you trust? Like Lydia, what do you trust to solve all your problems? The truth. The truth will set you free, the Bible says. And so the truth, Jesus is the truth. If you actually put your trust in the truth, watch what happens to your problems. And last but not least, the life. The life that you want to live, he is the life you want to live. He is the life that is waiting for the desire of your heart. He is the way, the truth, the life. And when you can answer those three questions and be aligned with the gospel, watch what happens to your life and the people's lives around you. Will you bow your heads?